everyone, and welcome to Power Hour. He's Chris Vanini. I'm Nicole Auerbach, and we are back in action after the semifinals before a national championship game matchup between Michigan and Washington. We will have an unbeaten national champion this year. And Chris, as we're recording this on Tuesday night, I got to tell you, I still am in disbelief that of what we saw on Monday, the fact that both of those games came down to a final play. I was you know, a few yards away from the game-winning stop for Michigan, Jalen Milrow. But I I just, I'm I'm so giddy. I'm so glad that we got the games we got. Yeah, you just just flew in from Pasadena, and boy, are your arms tired. It has been a long day for you here. Uh, It, it, um, you know, I did the reaction pod with Ari last night, Monday night. That's on your feed. And I'm still on a high from... Those two games. It's been 24 hours basically at this point, and I'm still like just consuming everything I can about these games because it was so much fun. You know, it, 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 I'm just excited for the championship game. I'm glad we only have to wait a week instead of like a week and a half, like sometimes is the case. It's um, it was incredible those two games, and we have we a lot do. To say and about. before we get going, a reminder as usual to follow this podcast on Apple wherever you get your podcasts. We appreciate five-star reviews and ratings. You can subscribe to the Until Saturday feed on YouTube so you can watch live reaction shows like Chris was part of on this feed after the semifinal games. And you can always sign up for the Until Saturday newsletter where you get your daily fill of college football news right into your inbox. But Chris, let's dive into all of this. We are still buzzing, so we're going to start with the CFP semifinals. The Power Five today, as we run through five topics to start the show, is going to be five takeaways from the two games, Michigan, Alabama at the Rose Bowl, and Washington and Texas at the Sugar Bowl. Uh, I will start here. It's it's what I said right off the top. This was the best pair of CFP semifinals that we've ever had. I mean, listen, the, the competition's not too steep here. It's last year. That's pretty much it. Um, mm-hmm. but these games, the, the Rose Bowl was sloppy and there were a lot of mistakes. We saw botched snaps, we saw muffed punts, we saw a lot of things that impacted that game. But the final five minutes, the overtime period, there was as much at stake and some high level execution. It, it was incredible. And then obviously, with what we saw from Michael Penix Jr. And that game and the mismanagement of the clock and everything we'll get into a little bit later in the show as well, uh, for that to come down to a final play as well, despite all the mistakes, despite those parts that make it truly college college football, because these are not professionals. I just thought it was a phenomenal day for the sport, and it was the best of the best playing each other and needing to go out and win the game at the end. Both of these games have a case as the best semifinal we've ever had. The other one in contention would certainly be uh, Georgia, Oklahoma, the yes, overtime game in the Rose Bowl, Ohio State, Alabama that first year, probably up there as well. Um, so not not a not I a covered ton. that one. I covered that one, which by the way was the last time a Big Ten team beat an SEC team in the playoff like this was bookending the four team playoff era. And that one I think has its own place in college football lore because 
of Cardell Jones because of the first year of the playoff, the controversy around Ohio State getting in. But the pair of these games to go back to back to keep all of you guys on the Eastern and Central time zones up till God knows what hour, it was electrifying. Again, like even the sloppy parts and the special teams disasters and the clock man, like I don't think that took away from it. It added because you just didn't know what moment was going to flip the game. Right. I, I mean, we had both both games featured a muffed punt. Uh, for one, you had uh, a bevy of errors in the first in the Rose Bowl. You had Washington inability to run out the clock in the second one, almost costing them the game in part thanks to a really unfortunate injury we will get into. So it to have both games come down to the final play was, uh, I want to say, not surprising because we said coming in, everybody said coming in, these were, this was the most evenly matched semifinals we had uh, ever had and we're going to get a one versus two matchup for the four only the fourth time in 10 years almost every time the number one seed wins a lot of times it's not close one of the few times the one seed didn't win was that ohio state game so uh to have a really good one four game is pretty rare and then you throw the good two three game on top of it uh cfp top four four team arrows going out on a pretty good note And we talked about this in our mega preview show where we did the crossover episode with Max and Sam. You could have made a case for each of those four teams and why they were going to win the game, win it all, and also why they're going to lose. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, the the margins Mm -hmm. were so slim. Any of these teams could have won. And, you know, we're going to get into the national championship game here in a second, but you can make cases on both sides of this game. And it's, it's so interesting, but it's fresh and it's new, even though you have the winningest program in college football history and the team that's been in the headlines the most throughout the season in Michigan, you have teams that have not played for a national championship. Washington hasn't been in the playoff since 2016-17. Michigan getting over the hump and everything that's at stake there. The Big Ten hasn't had a champion in a long time. There's just... There's so much newness and so much freshness to this. Mm -hmm. And as much as we both were upset about Florida State not being included and the results that happen after Selection Sunday do not justify or not justify that, I will tip my hat a little bit to the committee because they gave us two great games. To to that point, um, before we move on, you know, any four of these teams could have won the national championship. I mean, you could expand that. I, I think Florida State would have been right in there if they were fully healthy. Yes, and in this yes. game, Georgia, we believe, could have yep. as well. I don't even remember who's number I, seven. I, I, but like, I would like to see and, and, Oregon, Oregon against yeah, anyone yeah, that so wasn't like, Washington. That that's what's going to be fun next year because we may be kind of moving out of this super team era, which like Alabama the last two years is the most talented teams in the history of the 24-7 team talent rankings in terms of just total numbers. The last two Alabama teams. Neither have played for a national championship. Both both those Alabama teams had lots of loss. So like maybe this is kind of a new era for the sport as we go into the 12-team playoff. Let's move on to number two. Jim Harbaugh, Michigan. They get over the hump. They are now one and two in the semifinals. And I thought coming in that Jim Harbaugh faced more pressure in this game than anybody else on both teams. 
because of the narrative around it, because of the sign-stealing stuff, because of the NFL drama. If he had lost this game, he would have been just pillared uh, unrelentingly and perhaps deservingly so. But instead, they beat Alabama again without Connor Stallions, who was actually at the game, but he wasn't. He, he was <laughs> at the game. Out. Yeah, you, confirm Nicole, you confirmed this. Yeah, <laughs> Nicole, you confirmed it. Connor Stallions was apparently there. So the joy and the emotion on the field after the game surprised me a little bit because Michigan, I've been at the Big Ten Championship the last couple of years. I've been at Michigan-Ohio State games. And now that they've won those, it's there's there's joy, there's happiness, but it's not emotion. Like this season, because Jim Harbaugh wasn't there for half the games, because of everything that was happening, we've seen it pour out of them. We saw it pour out of Sharon Moore, right? And one of the most iconic moments of the season of him sobbing. But there was so much of that on the field. And by the way, shout out to the Rose Bowl. We got a ton of pregame field access. Full, last five minutes Ooh. of the game and obviously overtime on the sidelines. I was at the yard line of the final snap. Like you get so much more out of covering these games when you get better access. And then, you know, you're able to just grab whoever before the trophy celebration and then afterwards. And I saw, you know, Mike Hart and Blake Corum embracing and interacting and then pulling Denard Robinson aside to grab a photo of the three of those legends um, you know, I was able to talk to Cheryl more about what Blake Corum told him, you know, heading into that final stretch of the game. He said, feed me, feed me like I, I can do this. You get so much more because it's so fresh. And Jim Harbaugh was so happy. Jack Harbaugh was so happy. He speaks and looks exactly like Jim. I, I loved how everyone was having a lot of fun with those videos. But Jack Harbaugh, I was asking him after the game what's going through his mind in overtime, what's going through his mind as that game is ramping up because I was nervous. I had butterflies. I didn't want a muffed punt at the goal line to end, like for that kid, for that to be how the game was decided. I mean, it was the same Dylan Johnson's injury. I mean, there was just so much, there was so much where you're just like, your heart is like, just like, it's just rapid fire. But Jack Harbaugh said he had been on Bo Schembecker's staff three straight years and left the Rose Bowl in heartbreak three times. Mm -hmm. And so he just kept thinking about that, about what that feels like over and over and over again, and then didn't have to have that. Right. So there was just so much giddiness and so much joy and so many hugs. And, um, it, it, it clearly meant so much. We'd harped on this so much in a lot of our shows in the last month about not getting over this hump, not, not getting past this stage. Michigan hasn't played for a national championship because they didn't during the BCS era. Their last national championship was before that where everyone played their bowls and it was a split national championship. They made the CFP and then they've been nervous. They've been shaky. They've been, uh, you know, inconsistent, embarrassing um, or embarrassed themselves in the way that they played. They made mistakes. Um, They weren't emotionally prepared. I mean, all of these different things over the last two years and to finally get that, get through it, and to get to play for a national championship on Monday night in Houston, uh, it, it it was remarkable. Like it was just everything was pouring out of of these guys and and Jim Harbaugh specifically. You saw during the game just how emotional and how upset he was, um, and stressed, uh, just how stressed he was during that game. 
it meant a lot, and it meant a lot because it was Alabama. It meant a lot because it was Nick Saban. And it meant a lot because of the way they won it. They won it with a defensive stand at the goal line, three mm-hmm. three yards away. Uh, all of that, I think, fed into to all of that emotions. But it is a big deal because, Chris, how, how many years do we talk about, okay, well, you know, Jim Harbaugh's the white whale. Michigan got him back, and then they can't beat Ohio State. And then they can do that, but this style of play is never going to win a national championship. Can't even win games in the CFP. Uh, and then they did it. They did it the way that they wanted to play it as well, minus the special teams issues. I am very curious how they come out for the championship game because your point about the outpouring of emotion, this is a team that has played nervous for at least the last two semifinals, maybe in that Georgia game as well, where they are making uncharacteristic mistakes, pick sixes, muffed punts, dropped passes, bad throws and a wide receiver falls down. And so... With with that celebration that we all saw, I saw some people wonder, hey, is Michigan going to have a letdown now? Is the high too high after this win? And I'm kind of thinking the opposite. I'm thinking they feel like they got past that hurdle now. Now they don't need to stress out about can they win the semifinal or not. And I think you'll see a Michigan team that's probably going to play a lot looser than we've seen in the last two semifinals and perhaps not make as many mental mistakes that nearly cost them for the second year in a row. I think I think that's a great observation because I covered the Michigan team that beat Ohio State and snapped the streak. And then I covered that Big Ten championship a week later, and we all thought the same thing, that they had been ramped up to beat Ohio State, that everything in that facility, everything on the – like everything revolves around that – well, now, oh, my God, I let down. It absolutely wasn't, right? Like, they, every time we think we've learned things about Jim Harbaugh's team psychologically, we don't or we're wrong because this year there have been, you know, we use the words distractions and adversity and all these different things, right? A lot of this was self-inflicted, right? Because you're talking about rule-breaking, alleged rule-breaking within the program. But the pro the, the players were so even keeled the whole time like they mm-hmm. didn't they didn't get distracted they didn't react they didn't have these wild ups and downs like the program was dealing with off the field in the news cycles right and so i i just i think that they're just built differently with that like i i just don't i think that they can have this high and then not have a low like i i they're just they're they're wired differently Let's flip it over to the the opposing team that they're going to see in Houston, and that's Washington. And for as much as you and I, we we went to Big Ten schools, you know, we've spent a lot of time in the Midwest. We think a lot about you know the Big Ten's record against the SEC and those two leagues, and they're 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 the way that these styles of play are perceived. The Pac-12 has been much maligned for a very long time, and you can talk about how the football product impacted the perception of the league, uh, how the performances and lack thereof in the CFP era put them in a situation that they were in where the league fell apart the way that we know it. Um, But whatever it is here, there is something poetic. It is obviously crushing and bittersweet, but the Pac-12 has a chance to win a national championship with Washington in the last year of its existence as we know it. 
This is also a de facto Big Ten national championship because there will be a rematch as a conference game later this fall. Mm -hmm. The Big Ten will have the defending national champion when we kick off the 24 season this fall. So all of that's really interesting, but I think the bigger piece is, Chris, this is an unbeaten team that people have picked to lose so many times this season that people did not think could get through this schedule unscathed, that these close games are going to come back and bite them. And they keep winning, and they are a joy to watch. It it feels like a privilege to watch that offense. Yeah, look, I love... I. I like that this is a national championship matchup because it is the two biggest stories of the season meeting in Houston. It's Michigan and the various mini scandals around them. It's Washington and the end of the Pac-12. Those were the two biggest things we talked about all year. And now they're colliding here for a championship game. It's going to be a clash of styles, which I love. That's what makes fun and interesting games. And... You know, Michael Penix Jr., former Indiana quarterback who has played Michigan before. That is going to be another part of all of this. I'm looking forward to seeing that Michigan defensive line, which whipped Alabama against Washington's offensive line, the Joe Moore Award winning group. Um, we'll get into some of the matchups a little bit later in this episode. But uh, yeah, you know, I saw George Klyovkov, the commissioner, was uh, talking to some reporters after the game and said basically, hey, you know, if the schools had just waited around a little bit, you know, we would have been. We would have been okay. I don't I don't buy that. Now, if you want to say if this season had happened last year, the Pac-12 would have been okay. That I agree with. If if you had this season a year ago, the Pac-12 would have gotten enough TV deal money from people other than Apple that would have probably kept the league together even without USC and UCLA. They would have added San Diego State and what have you. So yes, it is a real shame. Um once again, that the Pac-12 is going away. But it going away uh, in a national championship game is, is quite a way to go out. And so, yeah, man, the, the, the stories just collide here. And that is going to be a really, really fun matchup. Number four. Oh, I, this was going to be yours. I'm stealing it. Oh, number you four. All right, I'll do it. Number four. <laughs> no SEC teams in the final for the first time since 2014, I believe the second time since 2005, not going to happen. So th- that that's interesting. There's a lot of like SEC media people we know, like Cole Kubelik and, and stuff like that, and they you know tweeted from the the Rose uh, from the Rose Bowl. Uh, hey, it was a great uh, great great season. Everybody appreciate all that. And I was like, wait a minute, there's another game left. I'm not used to those people like their seasons ending not in the national championship game. I'm used to seeing all them at the title game. So it, it's going to be a different vibe for a lot of people. And, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's an all big 10 future, all big 10 final, like we said. And so Tony Petiti obviously was going to be there anyway. He, you know, the big 10 can kind of puff its chest out and, and crow and do all that kind of stuff. So it's well, first off, what's your thoughts on that? No SEC team. But I, are they allowed to do this? I mean, this is the same conversation that we had, after Alabama upset Georgia and we weren't sure if they were going to get left out of the CFP was, well, can you, can you do that? If no one had to go through the SEC team to, to win a national championship, like how do we feel about that? But it's part of the reason that I think if you're Michigan, 
I think you were not glad that you got Alabama because they're such a challenge, but we talked about how focused they would be because, you know, you weren't going to get a pass. You weren't going to get a team with a backup quarterback or a team like TCU Mm -hmm. that obviously like you overlooked too much last year. You were going to be locked in because you'd really earn it. And I think having that piece of it um, and having that fact that Alabama was part of the playoff, you still have that validation. And I think it's, I think it's good to have some new blood playing in the title game. I think it's great for us in terms of like the storylines we get to cover and the newness and the, the just so, so much that's different, but also just that, you know, the way that Michigan beat Alabama was the way that we've seen SEC teams beat everybody else for so long at the line of scrimmage. Right. And, um, the physicality, the size and the speed as well. And I just think it's good because other people have clearly risen up to get to that level and, and to beat them. And it just doesn't happen that often. This is, I, I mentioned this earlier that Michigan hasn't played in a national championship game. But Ohio State has been the only team from the Big Ten that has even been in this type of situation that has kind of carried the flag in all these big games. Mm-hmm. And the SEC is 8-2 and two against, against Ohio State since 2000 in top 10, AP top 10 matchups. It's hard. It's really hard to get here. It's hard to be in this situation. And we talked a lot in the early pre-conference season about the record. The ACC was beating them, the middle of the league. You know, we're just we just weren't sure how how good the league was this year. And I think that again, to go along with kind of some of the themes of the season, not having an SEC team in the champ game fits with where we felt that that league was this year and some of those teams that are usually, you know, kind of in that upper third, upper half yeah. of the conference. And then you still had then you had like Mizzou and you had Ole Miss and you had these other teams that are rising up, programs that are rising up and gonna be in great position to to get into the 12 team playoff. But I don't know. I, I don't know. It feels it. I just, I think the freshness is good. I think it's, it's, it's healthy. And I think that we learned a lot more about the sport this year by having five great conference champions. And then Georgia mm. still there. And the fact that the PAC 12 had a contender and, and that that contender got in and just the, the there were so many different parts of the country engaged in ways that we haven't seen it in a long time. And I think you need to have actual success at the highest level to continue that. Yes. it. If, if Florida State had gotten in over Alabama, um, we would have had a lot of SEC talk that it's not a legitimate championship because no SEC team, yada, 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 all that kind of stuff. So the fact that Michigan beat Alabama, the SEC champion, like you said, just kind of ends that. Because the SEC, like you said, had not had a good non-conference run. They, they had a poor non-conference season. And then the bowl game started and the SEC started winning these games and Missouri beats Ohio State's third string quarterback in the Cotton Bowl. And you're hearing the SEC people start to kind of talk again. And this is why Alabama got in. This is why the SEC is so great. Uh, and and then Michigan wins that game. And yes, it was a close game. Could have gone either way, obviously. But the fact that Michigan won kind of, I think, legitimizes that even further. Interesting stat here. Washington, if Washington wins, they will be the first team to win the national championship without beating an SEC team since 2005 Texas. Now, 
like half or more than half of those national championships are by SEC teams. So that's part of it. And then the other part is Clemson beat Alabama twice. Ohio State beat uh, Alabama. You got a couple of those in there as well. So yeah, in, in Michigan beat Alabama. So that streak continues if Michigan wins. If Michigan doesn't win, it's the first time since Vince Young's Texas. Okay, number five, last one in the Power Five. Uh, we promise we'll move quicker through the other segments. Um, the one really interesting tangential thought I had last night watching the Sugar Bowl was, did we vote for the Heisman too early? A- and we've had this conversation in some other seasons when you see um, like Deshaun Watson in-, in that Clemson team and some other players what they do in the postseason, and maybe not the rest of the country. Like maybe people didn't watch all the Washington games. You know, you do have a lot of Heisman voters who cover other teams, um, or feel that they're only supposed to vote for someone in their own region. But the conversation we had around the Pac-12 championship game was kind of a microcosm of this. This idea that, well, you know, is this one game the fact that he's that Penix is playing in a meaningful game and Jaden Daniels isn't? Should that matter? And you and I talked about that a lot. But when you see something as special as we saw in the Sugar Bowl and you see the best player in college football this season um, or the most valuable player, however you want to talk about that, right? Does it make you think that we should be voting for the Heisman later, that it should matter how the teams, the players on the teams that play in the most meaningful games, how they perform? As someone who voted Michael Penix number one, uh, unlike the other person uh, on this podcast, I actually say no. Um, we we should not vote for the Heisman after the playoff because if we do, it's going to be heavily skewed toward whoever is basically the MVP of the championship game or the MVP of the playoff. Um, no other sport does its major awards after the postseason, NBA, NFL, MLB, like all that stuff. It is not based on how you do in the postseason. So I believed Michael Penix should have won the Heisman Trophy. I had Jaden Daniels number two, but Michael Penix always showed up in the biggest games and he made the biggest plays and moments that defined the season. When I talk about storylines in terms of reaching the national championship game, his performance in the Sugar Bowl only furthered uh, that belief for me. So I say no, it shouldn't change because it would be too heavily skewed toward that way. But for someone who voted for Jaden Daniels, I am curious how you feel about that. I just I think it's an interesting question. Um, I think that Penix also had, you know, that stretch where he didn't play all that well when he was dealing with the flu and all these different things. Right. So I I do think a full strength, Michael Penix, the whole season, putting up the kind of numbers that he did, maybe not, you know, his best game of the season, like he did, but close to that, you know, maybe it's the gap is closed a little bit more with Jaden Daniels and the individual impressive nature of his performances. Um, but I, I just I think I voted more outstanding versus like most important player on a team that was in contention. And some years I don't. Um, but I think that's what I need to figure out exactly how I want to weigh that. But we'll get into that further in the offseason. I think that's good food for thought because you and I are going to fix the Heisman anyway. So uh, yes. we will we will debate that and how we how we view the award. But let's move into our top shelf segment. Um, this is where we talk about the games that we're interested in or just kind of the matchups in the biggest games that we want to put a spotlight on. And there's one game left. It's the national championship, Michigan, Washington, Houston, Monday night. 
And there are a couple big questions. And the first one is, what about Dylan Johnson? What's his status? We talked about the clock management at the end. Washington trying to run it out. They ran the ball. Dylan Johnson gets hurt. Chris, what is the latest with his status as we record here Tuesday night? Yeah, as we're recording Tuesday night, um, Huskies offense coordinator Ryan Grubb tells local radio in Seattle that Dylan Johnson is expected to play in the national championship game, that x-rays weren't negative. Uh, After that game, right after the game, Caleb DeBoer was asked about it, uh, said uh, he hadn't talked to the training staff yet, but said it's it's something he's been going through for the last couple of months. He was down and in some pain, but he's been in pain the last couple months. This is a massive matchup question here for this game. It might determine my pick in the game if if we believe Ryan Grubb that Dylan Johnson is playing because Washington doesn't really have anybody else behind him. Their number two running back, Tybo Rogers, 43 carries on the season. Dylan Johnson had 222 carries. Th- this guy has been the entire running game for them. And if he can't play or if he's not 100% and Washington has to completely rely on throwing the ball and becomes too one-dimensional, that is going to be an issue for Washington. Yes, they can throw the ball, but one of the reasons they can throw the ball so well is because they have a 1,000-yard rusher on their team. That is very, very important. You have to keep the defense honest. So at the moment, it seems like Dylan Johnson is playing. I guess we'll only know for sure in a week. Um, I can't imagine he's 100% because that dude looked like he was in a lot of pain at the end of that game. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it unlocked something different in their past game when he got going and the kind of performances that he was able to put up. The other big question that I've got just coming off of these games is the matchup between Michigan's defensive front and Washington's offensive line slash Michael Penix Jr. Because Michigan got what it wanted. Obviously, Alabama changed some of the protections, brought in a a seldom-used running back, did different things in the second half that worked a lot better than they did in the first half. But six sacks, 10 tackles for loss allowed by Alabama to this Michigan defense. Washington allowed zero sacks and only three tackles for loss against Texas. And we talked so much about that matchup, about that O-line and Texas's game wreckers on the other side and the aggression there. And Washington's O-line did a great job. Alabama's O-line was not one of the nation's best. We talked about that all season long, but it did get better as the season went on. Then it completely reverted. They had snap issues. They had a whole bunch of problems there. But Michigan got so much pressure. And they did it right out of the gate. Those two sacks on the first opening drive for Alabama set the tone, and they were able to get after him. The way that the game ended snuffing out that that Jalen Milrow run. It's been uh, tangentially just, uh, I don't, we don't need to debate it, but the idea of like, was that a QB draw? Was it supposed to be an RPO? Very interesting as, a, as an aside. But Michigan's Michigan controlled the line of scrimmage. And this yep. is going to be a really interesting question coming into this matchup against the offensive line that won the Joe Moore Award. We do have a couple of pressure stats. So against Alabama, Michigan blitzed uh, 42.7%, 42.9% of the time, third highest of the season. 
and they had a 31.4% pressure rate for lowest of the season. Um, that surprises so, me. Fourth, fourth lowest pressure rate because it felt like they got to him every single play. Sure I, don't know how they, I don't know how they calculate it, but uh, those are the numbers. Sure did, especially in the first half. Um, so again, this is this is the big matchup to me, Chris. How do you see it? So since Alabama and Michigan kind of like took up all the attention going into the games, um, a lot of people didn't notice that Washington's offensive line and Texas's defensive line were talking some mad trash about each other. <laughs> like on media day and stuff like that. Like they were pretty open about how they think they can dominate the other one and stuff like that. And we don't think they're that big of a deal. It's pretty cool. I like that. I like when we kind of have some good trash talk like that. And Washington backed it up. They allowed no sacks, three tackles for loss. I don't have the pressure rates in front of me, but it was quite low, especially from the outside. And Washington controlled line of scrimmage. The few times that they got to Michael Penix, he was able to run, something he doesn't normally do. Had three runs of at least 10 yards, I believe. And he's so shifty in the pocket. Like, even when he doesn't take off or he's not scrambling out and throwing on the run, he makes such subtle, quick movements where even when there is a pressure, he's always looking downfield and can get past it. It's what made Tom Brady so good, is that he was able to just move just enough. And that's exactly what Penix did in this game. So can Michigan get that kind of pressure. This is going to be a much different offensive line that they are playing. And Michigan won that Alabama game because of line of scrimmage. Washington was able to do what it did because it played well on the offensive line of scrimmage. The other side of the ball we'll get to in a minute. But this is the matchup I think that will determine the game just like it did against Alabama. Can Michigan get to Michael Penix, get him off of his spot, make him throw on the run or facing pressure? Because by the way, Michael Penix uh, against the Blitz this year, completing 58% of his passes, nine yards per attempt, 11 touchdowns, three interceptions. He has some really good uh, numbers against the Blitz. However, when he's pressured, those numbers go down a little bit, less than 50% completion, five touchdowns, three interceptions. But again, that's when he's being pressured. That's, that's kind of tough to say. He does well against the Blitz. Fascinated, fascinated to see how that one goes as well. And you mentioned flipping it over. The important part about what Michigan wants to do on offense, and this is why I thought such an important key to the semifinal was not falling behind big early, which they had done in both their previous semifinal losses. And they did. They yep. they obviously, you know, had the near interception and the muff punt. Uh, and so, like, but it didn't get out of reach. Because Michigan needs to be in a close game or be in control of a game because they want to run the ball and and they want to get they want to be methodical that way and they it, it it allows them to do what they want to do in the pass game as well. JJ's scrambling ability, his run, his running that's that's something that I thought we were going to see more against Alabama. But there was a stretch in that game, particularly in the first half, where it felt like Michigan was well. Michigan was averaging like six yards a carry. They they mm -hmm. finished the game. With uh, they finished at four point one, finished at four point one, yeah. But again, like it felt like when they needed to run the ball, and this is something we've seen with them all year, especially in short yardage, like it's automatic. You know, third and one, third and two, fourth and one, fourth and two, whatever. But they even got some explosive runs, which we hadn't seen a lot mm -hmm. this season. But Blake Corum had told me at media day that they were capable of it, and he particularly was certainly. But they need that piece. They need to be able to run the ball. They need to control enough of the line of scrimmage on that side of the ball, too. 
the best way to keep Michael, the best way to stop Michael Penix is to keep him off the field. And Michigan's ability to run the ball is how you do that. Your point about Ginger McCarthy and running early on in this game, in the Rose Bowl, Michigan was doing some different things with McCarthy. They were doing some quick passes. They were doing some rollouts to get him away from the pressure that they thought Alabama was going to have. Then Alabama wasn't getting that pressure. Michigan was blocking very well, so they didn't have to move JJ out as much. He was able to continue to make some plays. He he obviously is very good on the run. Michigan is going to be able to run the ball in this game. The question is, is it enough to win it for them, or is Washington going to be able to answer? Because Washington allowed 6.2 yards per carry against Texas on the season. They're 86th nationally in yards per carry defense. Yes, that includes sacks and stuff like that, but... In general, this has not been a good rushing defense. So I expect Michigan to have that there. It's like you said, though, Texas fell behind by 10, 13 points in the second half. They had to start throwing the ball more. If if if, if Washington can get up on Michigan early, does that change how Michigan approaches things on offense? These two teams played, by the way, two years ago, 2021. Kalen DeBoer was not there. It's a different coaching staff. But Blake Corum rushed for 177 yards in that game, 8.1 yards per carry. Hassan Haskins also rushed for 155. So just two years ago, we saw Michigan run all over Washington, and that is what Washington has to make sure cannot happen this time around. Spinning off of that, mention the explosive run plays that they got uh, a couple out of Blake Corum, including that 17-yard touchdown run. But they had them in the past game, too. if they had that flea flicker that that didn't work, that could have been another one because it actually no, it worked. Like oh, no, the, the, the other the, one, yes, yeah, the other one. The throwback worked. Uh, Sorry, the, yeah, the throwback. But which, by the way, that was an incredible athleticism by JJ McCarthy uh, to to get that throw off. But they had seven total explosive plays in uh, per true media, which is a pass of at least sixteen yards or a rush of twelve or more, and they hadn't. That, that had been the question I had all along because we know that Alabama's offense had the capability of explosive plays. We know that there were deep balls and, and all of those things and that Michigan was much more comfortable with the run game, the intermediate, and the short pass game. And I think that the question is going to be in this game, if Washington does Washington things and they're scoring quick and they're putting up touchdowns, can Michigan match that? Can they be explosive enough in this game to hang in the game? Yes, because that is what we expect Washington to be able to do. They've been able to do that all season. And those Michigan, those Washington wide receivers uh, are nothing like Michigan has seen. I think Washington's wide receivers are what we thought Ohio State's wide receivers were. And it's a good group. But Roma Dunze had a good case to win the Bolitnikoff over Marvin Harrison Jr. And I think lost by one, like one vote or something like that, I think it was. So like, this is a incredibly deep group that can get the explosive plays. Can they get them in the run though? We mentioned Dylan Johnson before. It can't all be in the passing game. They did have three explosive runs. Three of those actually came from Michael Penix. I am curious if they use more quarterback run in the game because of that. So yeah, explosive plays, turnovers. Those are the, those are like the two stats that generally win you uh, or lose you games. And Michigan, you know, they, they had, you know, the, like they had a couple of explosive plays that were kind of a dump off. The big play on the final drive was a dump off 
to Blake Corum on fourth and two, you know, with the big stuff like that. So Michigan got a lot of yards after the catch type of stuff, and they're going to need that uh, in this game. Okay, let's move over into our happy hour segment. Uh, This is a very happy, happy hour. You know I always love the goofiness and the silliness of college football. Nothing was goofier or sillier than the Pop-Tarts Bowl and the Pop-Tarts Bowl mascot. It was something we both anticipated. We talked up. I have a Pop-Tarts Bowl t-shirt. I was eating Pop-Tarts watching the game. But the execution of everything around that was better than I could have expected. The giant toaster and the human mascot and the dancing with the cups and dancing with, uh, you know, making goofy faces behind the, the officials. Everything was so pitch perfect. And then to have the human Pop-Tart mascot die happily the, the way that he wanted and then be reborn as an edible Pop-Tart that the Kansas State players just dove right into, gobbled up, ate even with their dirty little gloves on, which cannot yeah. be hygienic. Don't eat with gloves on. That, the, also, you I don't, know, I don't think he was reborn. I, I, I think he was mostly just dead. Well, he passed on to a edible form. He was excited about that. The funniest part of the whole thing was the sign was when he's going down and he's got the sign. This is dream true come true. And you're like, oh, is he just going to take that with him? And then right as he goes out of frame, he tosses it up behind him. Perfectly done. Perfect spin. Just like I'm going in. I laughed at that part so many times. He was dying the way he wanted to, you know, like he was so happy to become something greater than a human mascot. Everything about it was so funny and so good. Even when they they called out the mayo bowl in the trophy presentation. I mean, all of it was perfect, perfect, perfect. The K-State players and coach, everyone had fun with it. Um, I noticed, like, obviously I was excited about this and I've written you about had all, all the... Pop-Tart bowl. You had all the Pop-Tart Bowl scoops the whole time. Yeah, and I and and I and I've always been a fan of all the edible things that get involved in bowl games, but this crossed over so much beyond just college football fans. I had family members who I never hear from hitting me up about the Pop Tarts Bowl mascot. People.com was writing about it. Like it was a phenomenon. It was the last great meme of 2023. And I could not have been happier. I, you, this is what bowl season needs to be. It needs to be joyous. It needs to be fun. And you know what? Those players loved it. Like, they had a mm-hmm. great time. And that's what you want. And and we all had a great time watching it. It was actually a good game, but that didn't matter because I was just glued it, to it to see what we were going to get in the next montage from the mascot. It had. It was the largest bowl audience uh, outside of the outside of New Year's Day, I believe it was like more than four and million the New people. Year's six, yeah, yeah. So uh, it worked. Like like everything they did with that worked. The trophy was hilarious. We didn't even talk about the trophy. Like the edible mascot kind of overshadowed the trophy, which got its shine for like a day with the two slots on the top where you could put in the real pop tarts. In everybody wanted to know if it was a real toaster. It is not. I hope they do that for the next time uh, because there's a lot of. A lot of possibilities here. And we're going to talk about more with bowls these last couple of segments uh, if you want to move on to that. 
Because some people are yeah, not happy the, about bowl season. A lot of people are not happy about bowl season. Um, by the way, just shout out to the Costco's in the Pop Tarts Bowl region because they were selling out of Pop Tarts. I have inside sources that told me that. Um, okay, it's time no, did, to did, go. Did, wait, did you eat? Did you eat Pop Tarts? Did you watch the game? What's your flavor? Oh, I had brown sugar cinnamon, which is the superior okay. flavor. My number two is frosted cherry. Um, I've tried sure. some more. They're pretty good, but that's kind of like more like a dessert flavor. Yeah. Um, but I am. I've been hearing great things about blueberry, so I think that's going to be the next box that I purchase. I'm usually frosted strawberry. It's the original. It's the classic. Uh, wild berry as well. Mm. Big wild okay. berry fan as a kid. I remember when it came out. It's like a like a whole new thing. It was. My my mind was blown, so uh, I uh, need to get some more Pop-Tarts. Before I move on, just wanted to, again, pay our respects to Strawberry 2023 to 2023. You will be missed. Okay, time to go on the rocks. We talk about where there's some friction in the sport, some frustrations. And let's stay in bowl season. As you said, people are not happy. People were complaining about a lot of different things. Um, but mostly the opt-outs. Like, I think this the the conversations around the bowl season and the problems with it and the problems with the postseason, they were at the highest pitch after the Orange Bowl because so much of Florida State's offense and defense were not playing in that game, either by opt-outs or by injury. Georgia won by 60 points. It was not fun. It was not enjoyable. It wasn't even enjoyable for Georgia, and Kirby Smart afterwards said that you know, everyone needs to see what we what happened here tonight. It needs to be fixed. First of all, Chris, before you get into, because I wrote some of my ideas to to fix some of these problems. How big of a problem do you think it is? Uh, not much of one. Um, at least in the way that Kirby Smart was talking about it. This was kind of going to be my last call, but look, like next year this would have been a playoff game. Like Florida state would have been in the playoff. Like that, that is part of that is already fixed. The other, but there are some of the stuff you can't change. You can't wait to do the transfer portal until after the bowl season, because kids who want to play spring ball at their new school have to enroll by the beginning of January. Like you need to give them time to figure out what their new school is. A lot of it is just simply the circumstances of where the sport is right now. But yeah, you had, um, I think five ideas to yeah. fix bowl season, some of which yeah. are are clear, some of which I will, will, I'm a little pushback on, but to explain. All them. right. All right. We'll go through them. So number one was to lean into the silliness of bowls like the Pop-Tarts Bowl. You mentioned the viewership numbers, the reasons people are excited about it, players enjoying it. The bowl experience is going to need to be fun for the players. It has to incentivize them to want to go be part of it, to go do it. And that gets us watching, gets us talking about it. It's fun. It's supposed to be something that you earn and enjoy at the end of the season. Obviously, it's different depending on what your team's goals are and the types of seasons that you expect to have. But the goal is to have that joy. It's about that. And I think the fun bowls have really captured that. And it it, it hits on something that college football fandom includes in ways that professional sports that take themselves very seriously don't have. Like, I don't think you could have a Mayo Bowl or a Pop-Tarts Bowl, you know, if that were 
whatever the equivalent in the NFL would be. Like if there it's, was a pop tart, the, the NFL, the NFL equivalent is probably the Nickelodeon broadcast, but like the teams don't know that, you know, that's just for the yeah. TV audience. Right. It would be like, you know, just getting rid of the pro bowl and doing a bunch of goofy stuff, which they would never do because they take themselves too seriously. So it's, I think that was really important. And I think, you know, just kind of hitting on that and in, in the goofiness and the part of the fandom that loves stuff like that, I think is, is I, one of the solutions. I completely agree. You, that like, I used to be one of those too many bowls people until I talked to friend of the pod, Michael Felder, who talked about how the bowl trips as a player were some of the most fun times he had. And then I kind of came around and realized, why are we hating on stuff like this? You have to make them fun. Bring the Bahamas bowl was under construction, but like bring back the Bahamas bowl, have some fun. You, you got to make it feel special and exciting. Something for players to want to be there for it. Leaning into the silliness, I think does that. So my second idea was to allow bowls to directly pay players to play. So you need to change NCAA rules to allow this because for as much as there already is essentially pay for play with the way collectives work, they do ban like the idea of I will pay you X dollars to play in this game. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I don't think that this is going to solve necessarily like the fundamental problem of opt outs because you know, there's a lot of p- potential NFL players who are going to make way more money than whatever a bowl is going to offer. But maybe if you're on the fence or maybe if you're on the fence about transferring, you know, maybe or you're just kind of on the fence, like some of your teammates are opting out. The game doesn't seem all that exciting. It's possible that something like this would be worthwhile and could change things. Or maybe collective contracts could include participation in the postseason regardless of if it's a CFP game or not. I mean, I I just think there's some possibility around that right now. You have coaches who get bonuses. They make money by making a bowl game, by Mm -hmm. playing in a certain level bowl game. So that's not going to necessarily change anything for a coach because it's not like a big percentage of their contract. But why not incorporate something like that in for the players as well? Yes, and... and some of the bowls, like at least the cheese at Citrus Bowl, does NIL deals with players in the game. Yeah, they get, so to, like, they get to stay the, like at the cheese it room, the, like the hotel yeah, room. Yeah, like there are some things that have been tried. It's funny. I Two years ago, I wrote a story just about why there are not too many bowl games. And I talked to Nick Carparelli, the director of bowl season, and I asked him, I said, hey, would bowls be willing to pay players uh, to, to be in games? And he said that, uh, he said, basically, no, like, it's not really, they're not really talking about it. Bulls aren't really interested in doing that. Well, now Nick Carparelli is saying that the Bulls do seem to be interested in doing it. So things have changed. I think, obviously, transfer opt-outs have happened a lot more the last couple of years than we'd ever seen before. So, yeah, that is something potentially down the road that could impact things. Not, not, not to a giant extent, like, I don't think anybody who is, sitting out for NFL draft purposes is going to be swayed by making a bit of money from a bowl game. I don't think kids are not going to transfer because they're getting paid by a bowl game. So I'm kind of mixed on how effective it will be, but clearly the bowl people think it's something worth looking into. I I just think if the coaches are getting paid for participating in the bowl games, the players could Well, coaches are getting paid for everything and the players are getting paid for nothing. So right. That's also, that's (laughs) the whole, that's the whole sport. Um, okay, so so one of my other ideas, and this is also something that Nick Carparelli agrees with. He actually texted me and said that he's weighed all of these ideas, but um, is the idea of getting rid of the early signing period. And 
This comes mm-hmm. up a lot when we talk about December and the calendar. You, as you alluded to, and I tried to emphasize in this article because I think there were a lot of fans who who maybe weren't thinking this way. You can't move the transfer portal window, at least not the way that it exists, unless you move it just you don't have one after fall semester and you only have one in the spring, which I think would be hard to do. But you have to have it when it happens if it's going to be that length, because you do need to be able to enroll in your new school in January. And I suppose you could maybe have a later deadline or schools could become more flexible, you know, maybe during that drop ad period or I don't know, like I'll make exceptions for athletes. I don't know. There's, there's, there are some possible academic ways to do it, but for all inten- intents and purposes, no. So if you can't move the transfer portal window, you can just get rid of the early signing period that didn't exist at this time of year anyway for a really long time. It was overshadowed. You don't get to celebrate it. It's not a national holiday. And you have these coaches who are traveling around the country trying to deal with recruiting while the portal, while preparing for bowls. There's going to be playoff games next year that are going to make December even more crowded. One of the things you can move is the signing period, and I would just get rid of it entirely. So again, you're just trying to alleviate some of the pressure points and clear out space for the bowl games when you want to talk about trying to make them feel like they have more meaning. Yeah, moving signing day was something people have been clamoring for even before this most recent bowl season. I'm kind of surprised there hasn't been more momentum toward doing that, like at the NCAA level. Because I remember when the early signing period happened, it kind of happened pretty quickly. And it's just, it's a completely different world. We didn't have transfer transfer portal back then. Like, it's just, it's different. I think you have to adjust. Either move it to January, February, or get rid of it and sign whenever, whatever you want to do. But like, th- there was that quote from Hugh Freeze after their bowl loss, where he was basically like, yeah, I didn't have much to do with this offensive game plan for this game because I was busy recruiting. Because they are busy recruiting. I talked to an FBS head coach today about uh, some things they've been doing, and he was like, yeah, we would have spent more time on this for the bowl game, but we were just too busy like doing other things. And so th- that is one of several things that needs to be done to alleviate everything that goes on in December for many reasons, uh, but also for bowl games. My fourth suggestion was to abandon abandon conference affiliations so bowls can set up matchups that make the most sense. This is maybe a controversial one for some. There's definitely some tradition around certain conferences sending certain teams uh, to certain bowls and the history there. It also helps with the networks and planning and figuring out, again, like what are possibilities, how do things work, what your inventory might look like. But I just think if you allow for more flexibility around who the bowls are picking, and these are the non-CFP bowls, I think that it allows you to address varying levels of motivation. You might have the option to pick a 7-5 and five team that hasn't played in the postseason in a long time or is on the upswing, uh, has a bunch of young players coming back, so they're all going to play, and their fan base might travel because it's been, you know, six years since they last made the postseason over an eight and four team or nine and three team. That's disappointed to not be part of the playoff. I think any way where you can try to pair teams that are going to kind of treat the bowl the same could be a step up from what we've had. I would also say we've, we've seen this a little bit with six and six teams or five and seven teams. Same teams do this with the NIT, like decline a bid, but you don't really have that. Like Florida state, 
couldn't actually decline the Orange Bowl bid. They clearly didn't have interest in that game. They were crushed. They had a bunch of opt-outs. People were not rushing back from injuries to play in this game. They didn't want to be there. But they couldn't really say no. But so, I, again, I think it's about figuring out the teams that are motivated and trying to make that work, regardless of, oh, this is a matchup was supposed to be ACC Big 12. Just pick good matchups and be strategic. It also helps incentivize teams to be attractive to bowls. So, again, it's like, who is going to play? Who's going to be excited about this? So it's kind of the flip of, like, the bowl needs to be fun and be engaging and, like, something that the players want to be in. But it allows you to be more attractive, be more motivated, and allow the bowls to pick teams that that they think are going to want to be there. Yeah, I'm not totally sure how the bowl selection process goes. Some of them have ties into conferences that have to be uh, right. followed. That's what, some I, com- that's what I would get rid of. Some conferences have rules that like you can't take a team with too fewer losses into a certain bowl game, depending on the picking order. I would order. get rid of all of that. And then ESPN just owns a ton of these, and they kind of set the matchups however they want. Um, like a lot of the G5 ones are like that. So it's kind of a mishmash. Stuart Mandel probably has a better read on how exactly that works, but I do agree that um, it would be fun, especially because like, you know, Big Ten teams, they always get sent to Orlando and Tampa and it's like the, the same thing every year. There was a year where like Iowa and the Outback Bowl was like happening every other year basically or something like that. So yeah, like change it up. Let let teams go to other places and um, kind of work on figuring that out. Like and like Notre Dame has declined bowl games a couple of times back when they were six and six. I remember that happened when Jimmy Clausen was there, but Notre Dame's not in a conference. And I think I think conferences don't let you not go to bowl games because the conferences uh, get money for that. And everybody kind of shares a lot of the bowl money together in your respective conference. So that, that, that part would be tough. The, you can't, you, you can decline a bit if you want, but setting, setting up new kinds of matchups, potentially a lot more G five versus P five matchups. If you have a G five team that has a big fan base, like a James Madison or something like that, I think that'd be a lot of fun. My last one, and then we'll move on to our last calls, is something you and I talk about a lot, and I think it's going to be really important moving forward into the first year of the 12-team playoff, but we need to talk about college football and success differently, and this is something that I think needs to be a collective effort from pundits and media members to fans to coaches, administrators. It can't just be national championship or bust because that's how teams like Ohio State opt. You have star players opting out of a Rose Bowl a couple years ago or Florida State players skipping an Orange Bowl because they want to play for a national championship and their season is a failure if they're not. We used to celebrate other things. We used to celebrate 10 win seasons or, you know, a team like Arizona or Missouri and these teams that are taking major strides this season and they finish the season with success. Instead, a lot of people just kind of write off teams once they have their first or second loss and they're not in CFP contention anymore. And that's going to change because more teams will technically be alive. You will be able to make the playoff with a couple losses, resumes, different things are going to change in the way we talk about these teams. But we need to stop saying you can only have success if you win a national championship or you play for a national championship. Um, it's just, it's it's not healthy. And I think that that is the larger issue with bowl season by saying that games are meaningless because if that's the only way you have success, then 
almost everybody who plays college football is not having a successful season. So we need to talk about it differently. I agree. And you actually wrote a story like a year or two ago about this and how much ESPN had been talking about the playoff, like on college game day and stuff like that. However, it's going to get so much worse moving forward because we're in a 12 team playoff and we're going to have playoff games two weeks after conference championship games. We're going to have conference championships, then army Navy, and then, and then on campus first round games. And that is going to be where all the attention is. The good thing is that again, your orange bowls, your cotton bowls, you're not going to have those opt outs anymore because those teams will be playing. However, if you end up in a citrus bowl, uh, an LA bowl, a uh, rely a quest, formerly outback bowl. I think that's where you're going to see the trickle down go to even more. You're, you're going to have, you might have more players opt out of those games because they didn't make the 12 team playoff. And if you don't make the 12 team playoff in your, an Iowa or somebody like that, it's going to be uh, even more of a letdown. So, but, but, but that's okay. Because we are get, we're going to get more of the better teams not having players opt out. We're not going to have Ohio State players opt out of the Rose Bowl like happened two years ago. So like those middle tier bowl games are going to be the ones caught in the crosshairs. I don't think it's going to make any difference in terms of Pop Tart bowls or uh, Louisiana bowls or I'm sorry New Orleans bowls or Myrtle Beach Bowls, or Bahama Bowls, like those, the ones that are like G5 heavy, I think those are going to remain what they are. Those are going to remain lots of fun, quirky. Hey, it's football on. I haven't watched this team all year. It's something to do. I think those bowls will be okay, but those kind of tier below the New Year's Six, that's going to be tough. But I agree, we do need to talk about it differently. I just, I don't think it's going to happen now because we're going to be, we're going to get in November talking about how 30 different teams have a chance at the playoff. And that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, so we'll see. Yeah. I, I just think we miss a lot of these great stories in the sport when we only focus on things. And so I just think we need to be conscientious of that moving forward. Um, all right. We have rambled long enough today. Um, we are so excited about these semifinals, the champ game, bowl season, how to fix it, um, that we have gone a little bit long, but we do always end with a last call, it's a cheers or a jeers. It is a rant or a rave. It's whatever we need to get off our chest at the end of the night as the bar is closing. Chris, I will give you the floor to uh, make your last call. It's kind of a playoff of what we were just talking about, and it's not you specifically because you're, you're not saying this, but we had people, I'm not going to say any specific people, but... You could, you could see it. People talking about the Pop-Tarts Bowl. This is amazing. I can't believe people say there are too many bowls. This is what bowl season's all about. To then, like, two days later, Kirby Smart's absolutely right. The bowl system is broken. These games don't mean anything, yada, yada, yada. And I was just like, where is this whip? Like, this whiplash is ridiculous. Like, it can't be both. And I just, it was very bizarre to hear people celebrate bowl season and then also say that it is very much broken and you didn't say that you were just talking about different ways to improve it but like again the orange bowl is a playoff game next year it's already being fixed like a lot of the complaints that people are having th things need to do this this and that and that the biggest problem is already being fixed and that is because we are going to have a playoff that is include all of these top 10 teams that don't make it to the current four team cfp so i just i thought the discourse was maddening 
bowl TV ratings continue to be great. And there's just, there's not that many problems with the bowl system. There are ways to make it better. You laid out the ways to make it better. But the people who are like, this isn't the bowl season I grew up with. Nothing means anything anymore. Meanwhile, we're celebrating the Pop-Tarts Bowl and celebrating all the fun stuff that's getting poured on coaches. Like, it was just very inconsistent, I think, discourse about where bowls were. So keep it together, people. Chill out. Things are not broken. Your biggest complaint is already being solved next year. My last call, um, I will direct it specifically at David Ubbin. Do it. Get him. He, for some reason, doesn't love the Rose Bowl, doesn't appreciate it, thinks the sunset is overrated. I was always very pro Rose Bowl. I love watching it. I love watching the sunset. I even enjoyed when Chris took a photo of the sunset when the Rose Bowls played in Dallas, Texas. And it wasn't the famous one, but I covered my very first Rose Bowl in person. And obviously it was an all time great game. Um, We are just seeing the numbers rolling in from ESPN PR. 27.2 million viewers watched Michigan, Alabama best semifinal since year one peaked at 32 million. Like people watch this game. They said that was that that was one of the top 10 cable broadcasts of all time. That Rose Bowl, by the way, wild. Because it's a classic, because of the backdrop, because it's a place that's steeped in tradition. And you had two classic programs, the two winningest programs in college football history playing each other in a game that went to overtime. Like it was, it was perfect. And part of it's like, you know, they move these other games around, they play a lot of games in domes. We love the campus games. That's going to be awesome next year. I think it's going to even underscore this point even more of neutral site bowl games, but I already liked the Rose Bowl. And then I went there and it is like just perfect. It was, it had rained all week in LA. And then of course the sun is shining. It's like 65, beautiful. And the grass is perfect. It's, you know, I literally touched it. I wanted to make sure that I felt it. And you can walk around everywhere. When you get in the gates, it feels like Disney World because like it's not overly commodified. You don't have brands and sponsorships everywhere. It's like little tents that say like lemonade, merchandise, like food. You know, like it's it's it feels like when you go to Disney World and you're in the gates and you're in a different world and you're just happier. And there was just so much joy in that and the the backdrop for this and the pilgrimage that people make to come to a Rose Bowl when your team is in it. There were obviously a lot of Michigan fans because there's a lot of Michigan fans out there in general, but there's a lot that live in L.A. They, you know, they don't always get to play in this game. It's been a while, but there really is something special about that place that Ubbin just does not get. We need to send him there. Because I think if you're there, you feel it differently because it feels like what you want a big time college football game to feel like and look like. And it has all the tradition because so many classic games have been played there. So you feel all of that. And it's not the most highest tech place and it doesn't have, you know, that's, the, that's the good thing. But that, it, it is the good thing. It Th- has that, what it needs. Is, it, it is the Rose Bowl should host the national championship game every year. Yes. It doesn't have to be on January 1st, but that's what it should be. It's let not going to happen. It's let not me gonna, repeat yeah, that. Let me repeat that. 
The Rose Bowl should host the national championship game every year. Go ahead. Yes, because it is quintessential college football. It is the embodiment of what college football is. There is not tons of luxury seating. There is not all sorts of wacky camera and entertainment and DJ music blasting to try to keep people entertained. When you see the Rose Bowl Stadium, you think of college football. That's not the case when you see AT&T Stadium for the Cotton Bowl or the Peach Bowl or the Sugar Bowl or the Fiesta Bowl. They feel like more sterile NFL environments. When you see the Rose Bowl, you have a connection not just to Big Ten versus Pac-12, but to college football. It is the only is the only thing in the sport outside of home stadiums that has that feel. And so I'm really jealous you got to go. I've never been to that Rose Bowl. I went to the one Texas Rose Bowl. I've actually, I've still got the Rose Bowl branded hand sanitizer that they gave me from that game that uh, is a memento, I guess. I hope to get out to see Rose Bowl. I've never seen the San Gabriel Mountain reflection sunset before. So for David Ubbin, for uh, Stephen Godfrey, uh, our friend, who the people who are from the Southeast and don't understand it, and yes, there is reason to be upset at the Rose Bowl for holding the sport back sometimes, for uh, delaying a playoff or delaying expansion of the playoff, for it being the reason that the Sugar Bowl kicked off so late on Monday night. But in a sport that is losing so much of the feel of tradition in history, the Rose Bowl is the one thing that still has that. It treats itself like it's special. And none of the other games do that. And ESPN treats it like it's special. They give us the bands at the halftime show. They give us everything. You feel like you're there in a special place. They did a great job with it. It was a great game. And whatever comes in the 12-team playoff, I hope that game, whether it's a quarterfinal, semifinal, probably won't be the national championship, but I hope it continues to have a special feeling of representing college football. They won't do it, but you could play it as a quarter and you could play it as a championship game every single year. Got no problems with that. I was so giddy. And you and I can be very cynical. We have to cover a lot of the, the underbelly of this stuff, the hard news in college sports. I was so giddy when I got there at like 930 in the morning because you got to take a shuttle to get there because the parade's happening, which that's another element that makes it special. I walked around. I just like did laps of the stadium. I was down on the field. I was outside. I was walking through the tailgates. I was walking through. I was buying merch, all this different stuff. I got 12,000 steps while I sat still for four <laughs> hours watching a football game, right? Like it was, it was so special. And then of course to have, you know, access to the field, not everyone gives us that anymore. So you're actually down there for those last five minutes for Michigan's drive for the muff punt. I was like 20 yards away from that where the game almost ended in a safety all of that. Like, it was just, it was spectacular. And then it's also the best post-game prop. No, we don't, no offense to my Pop-Tart pals. The Rose. All the players running around with their each, their roses, their single roses, putting them in their mouths. I mean, it doesn't get better did, than that. So, did uh, you, if, if you can't answer this question, don't do it. But did you grab any uh, pieces of grass and, like, put them in your pocket? I did not. And I w also would not have told you if I did. Because Good, I feel like that would I, be... I, I've done illegal. that at stadiums before, but I would um, never admit to where. Yes. Um, no, it was it was it was picture perfect. It was it was great and it was a great game. And um Ubbin's wrong. So uh Ubbin, maybe this can be one of your New Year's yeah. resolutions one of these years is to come around on this or at least go spend some time pilgrimage yourself to the Rose Bowl. Yeah. 
Ubin, we could tell you this in the group chat, but we'd rather you listen to this on the podcast instead. You, you're he's a big golf guy. He, I'm sure he it's, loves the Masters. It's, it's the, the, the Rose Bowl is the Masters. It's it different than all the other majors. It's just it is, that's that is the biggest comparison I would make. Everyone and everyone's saying that. And, and the Masters and I, has its own problems, by the way. Plenty of problems, by the way. But 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 it it's it, also it's holds back progress. Also holds yes. back progress. Like yes, yes. It, But these are iconic moments, and they matter, and they mean something. And important games, important sports moments are played there. So, cheers to the Rose Bowl. It was freaking incredible, um, and it was an honor to be there. But we are going to wrap things up here. On Power Hour, it has been a blast. We appreciate you guys tuning in and listening. Uh, as a reminder, make sure you're following the Until Saturday podcast feed wherever you listen to your podcast so you'll get notifications when new episodes are up. We'll have a ton of content this week previewing the national championship game, a bunch of it on site because we'll all be there. Um, and Chris and I will, of course, also have Power Hour coming up next week as well after we get through the champ game. Hit that subscribe button on your YouTube channel as well if you want to watch some of our episodes live. And again, if you want the written word, subscribe to the Until Saturday newsletter to get that every day in your inbox. For Chris Vanini, I'm Nicole Auerbach. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again next time. <laughs>